Norman Centuries, Episode 12, Rise of a King. Welcome back. Last time we talked about the great Count Roger de Houtville, the youngest of the brothers who made their way to Italy. He had been only 26 when he entered Sicily, a young, ambitious knight seeking his fortune, and 44 years later had expired as the great statesman of the Mediterranean. Along the way, his military exploits had become legendary. When he invaded Malta in 1091, he tore off a portion of his checkered red and white banner and presented it to the Maltese. More than 900 years later, it's still the base of the present-day Maltese flag. His true claim to greatness, though, was as an administrator. At the end of his life, he put away his armor and turned to governing, creating a stable and prosperous state that would be the wonder of the dawning century. The only potential storm cloud on the horizon was the succession. This was surprising because, like all the Houtvilles, Roger was extremely prolific. As he neared his 50th birthday, he had at least 14 children. Unfortunately, as far as the succession was concerned, 12 of them were daughters, and of the two sons, one had leprosy and the other was illegitimate. Even worse for Sicily, Roger's wife had just died, leaving the unpalatable prospect of 12 son-in-laws fighting to claim the whole patrimony. The only solution was for Roger to quickly marry again. He had already outlived all of his brothers and many of his contemporaries, and there was no telling how much time he had left. The Normans, like all nobility in the Middle Ages, used weddings almost exclusively for political gain. Roger's brothers had all married into the local aristocracy as a quick way to be accepted. Giscard had even openly jettisoned one wife for a more connected match. Roger, though he had been deeply in love with his first wife, was no exception. Both of his previous spouses had been related to William the Conqueror, but now he was more interested in producing a son than increasing his prestige. He was, after all, already part of the most powerful family in southern Italy. He selected a noblewoman from Piedmont named Adelaide, whose main qualification was that she was said to be fertile. For once, the rumors proved right. Within four years, Adelaide presented a son, named Simon, to a relieved husband, and two years later a second one who was optimistically named Roger after his father. Almost nothing is known of the boy's first years, other than an apocryphal story written long after. Supposedly, they got into a fight in the courtyard of their father's palace, and the precocious Roger got the best of Simon. He then taunted his sibling, saying he should be the one to inherit their father's domains, while Simon should reserve himself for the church, which was more suited to his softness. This tale accurately reflected the Norman belief that only the fittest should rule, but in truth, neither boy was ready when Count Roger died. He expired after a short fever in June 1101, and, oddly enough for the man who conquered Sicily, chose to be buried in a little abbey in Calabria on the mainland, where to this day prayers are still said for the repose of his soul. Roger was only five when his father died, and this absence was to have a profound effect on him. For the moment, however, all eyes were on his eight-year-old brother Simon, who was dutifully installed as the new Count of Sicily and Calabria. Since he was still a minor, Adelaide took over the government as a regent. To anyone looking from the outside, this was a disaster waiting to happen. Adelaide was alienated in almost every way from the people she ruled. She was from the north of Italy, vastly different than these southerners, struggled with Latin, spoke only a touch of French, and had no Arabic or Greek at all. To her, the Norman barons must have seemed almost as alien as the native Sicilians, forever quarreling and only cowed by a more dominant personality. For anyone to impose their will, much less a woman, must have seemed a hopeless task. 
But somehow, Adelaide was able to do it. Not merely to hold her own, though that would have been accomplishment enough, but to provide a stable and peaceful regency for her sons. How exactly she did this isn't known. The sources for the period are depressingly thin. But Adelaide deserves to be remembered as one of the unsung heroes of Norman Sicily. Her tenure wasn't without its challenges. Young Simon died after only four years, and Adelaide took the most important step of her regency by moving the government from Messina to the great trading city of Palermo. There she had the ten-year-old Roger II knighted, and raised him among a mix of Italian, Arab, Greek, and Lombard courtiers. The change could be seen throughout the rest of his life. The men who had created his world, Count Roger, Giscard, and William Ironarm, had been Norman through and through. Roger II, growing up without a father in the most cosmopolitan city in Western Europe, was something new, a Sicilian. When Roger II turned 16, his mother decided that he had come of age. The economy was booming thanks to the success of the First Crusade and the immense volume of trade that now flooded through Sicilian markets. There seemed little point in holding Roger back. She had raised him to be a leader and it was now time to step aside. But she was also motivated by new plans of her own. Baldwin, the king of Jerusalem, had recently put aside his wife and was actively pursuing her, or more accurately, the money and soldiers she would bring with her. In the spring, he had sent emissaries to Palermo and rashly told them to agree to any demand she might have. As expected, she drove a hard bargain. Baldwin was childless, and Adelaide, as always looking after the interests of her son, stipulated that if it remained that way, Roger II would inherit Jerusalem on her death. With great pomp befitting a woman of her station, she boarded a ship for the Levant, and a new age for Sicily began. Roger II was wealthy and secure, but, like any of his ambitious ancestors, he wanted to turn that money into military strength. The most practical way of doing this on an island was to build up a navy, and he was fortunate to have a gifted civil servant at his disposal. The man's name was Christodoulos, and Roger, recognizing his abilities, created a new title to reflect his status as the highest member of the navy. The word he chose was emir, which was Latinized to amiratus, the first admiral in history. Christodoulos didn't disappoint. He produced a fleet of well-trained ships that was easily the finest in the western Mediterranean. Roger II just needed an excuse to use it, and one was helpfully provided almost immediately. The city of Madia in North Africa had been a major trading partner for Sicilian ports from the days when the Arabs controlled the island, and the resulting wealth had allowed it to dominate much of the surrounding coast. This control had earned Madia plenty of enemies, and when one of them was given a friendly audience in Palermo, the emir of Madia responded by raiding Roger's territory in Calabria. Even by the standards of the time, the brutality was unexpected. The town of Nicotera was wiped off the map, its women were raped, its men and children were slaughtered, and everything of value that wasn't nailed down was carried off to the waiting ships. As a final warning, the entire town was then burned to the ground. This was more than just a simple raid. It struck at the heart of medieval authority. The loyalty of a people to their lord was directly proportionate to his ability to protect them. To leave the strike unavenged for too long was to risk a serious erosion of his power. There was also a threat from his barons. None would confront him directly, but they would be happy to exploit the disaster for their own ends. If the people of Calabria didn't feel protected by Palermo, then they would switch their allegiance to one of the closer nobility who could. 
Christodoulos was ordered to sail for Madia at once. The situation in North Africa was looking more promising every day. The emir of Madia died, and though his 14-year-old son managed to hang on to the city, the region dissolved into chaos as petty strongmen tried to settle old scores and seize control. As Christodoulos approached, not a single Saracen ship appeared to contest the landing. Just as it appeared that the Normans would have an easy victory, however, their luck deserted them. A violent storm drove them ten miles off course, forcing them to seek shelter on some sandy islands off the coast. The next morning, Christodoulos left to scout out the strength of Madia's defenses, and while he was gone, a Muslim force discovered his camp and sacked it. The dispirited Normans tried to salvage the situation by seizing a castle on the coast, but instead of cowing the Madians, it had the opposite effect. The squabbling North Africans now had a common enemy, and when the young emir declared a jihad, they all responded. Most of the Normans managed to make it back to their ships, but those that were left behind were slaughtered to a man. Christodoulos had no choice. He cut his losses and headed back to Palermo, but even now his tribulations weren't over. On the voyage home, another storm hit, and barely a third of those who had set out so confidently managed to limp their way back to their home ports. Roger's first youthful flexing of his power had been painfully rebuffed, and the loss of prestige that he suffered was enormous. Not only had he refused to lead the raid in person, which was enough to raise eyebrows among the barons of his father's generation, but his vaunted navy had been bested by a 14-year-old. There was immense pressure to find a scapegoat, and Christodoulos was a natural one, but to his credit, Roger refused. There were no reprisals or purges. He would never forget the humiliation, but he was a patient man. Revenge would come, but it would arrive at a time of Roger's choosing, and not a moment before. In the meantime, there were more promising opportunities in Italy. The entire South was in chaos. Roger's formidable uncle Giscard had ruled with an iron hand, but his pathetic son Roger Borsa had been too weak to impose his will on the stubborn barons. When Borsa had died in his turn, he had been followed by his even less competent son, William. By 1121, Calabria was completely lawless, and William, who was chronically short of money, had little authority beyond the walls of his own castle. Roger wasn't above a little opportunistic grabbing, and he invited his cousin to a lavish banquet. After whining and dining him, casually displaying his wealth, Roger dangled the prospect of financial aid in return for being named heir to William's territory. This was eagerly agreed to. William was a desperate man, and Roger withdrew to Palermo to wait out events. In the meantime, he turned his attention to Malta. His father had invaded the island and forced its Arab masters to pay tribute, but Roger wasn't comfortable having an area so close to Sicily under Muslim control. In 1127, he sent his refurbished navy to end the threat once and for all. This time, the naval operation wasn't commanded by Christodoulos. The old admiral had probably died earlier that year. In his place was a young Byzantine named George of Antioch. As a teenager, George had left Asia Minor and moved to Tunisia, where he gained employment with the Muslim rulers of Madia. He fell out of favor with the emir's son and decided to defect to Sicily on the eve of the Norman invasion. To make good his escape, he cleverly waited until the Arabs were at their Friday prayers, and then disguised himself as a sailor and managed to slip aboard a merchant ship. When he arrived in Palermo, he marched up to the palace and asked for a job. His boldness paid off. Roger, always a good judge of character, 
saw immediately the usefulness of a man who was an expert in both the language and politics of North Africa. He was appointed as Christodoulos' second-in-command, and in the years after the Madia expedition, he increasingly outshone his superior. The expedition to Malta was carried off flawlessly, a foretaste of the triumphs that lay in store. The Muslims were expelled and the island was added to Roger's growing domain. George's return to Palermo was greeted with celebration, and even better news followed on its heels. In Calabria, Roger's cousin William had suddenly died, and as promised, Roger stood to inherit his lands. The problem was that William, like many weak rulers before him, had made the same promise to a number of people, including the Pope. The only thing everyone could agree on was that Roger shouldn't get a thing. The idea of a single figure controlling all of southern Italy and Sicily was the stuff of papal nightmares, and the Norman barons had no desire to exchange the freedoms they had grown accustomed to for a strong central authority. Roger had to act quickly before his enemies had a chance to organize. To start the offensive, Count Roger sent George of Antioch to seize the port of Salerno. The city was ready for him and barred the gates, so the admiral sailed his fleet back and forth in full view of the walls for ten days. The sight was enough to unnerve the defenders. The last time Salerno had resisted a Norman, it had been Giscard at the walls, and he had shown no mercy when he had at last gotten in. The Salernians weren't ready to tempt fate again, figuring it was better to come to terms with a determined Houtville when he was still ready to offer them. They surrendered. Giscard probably would still have executed a few leading citizens for daring to hold out ten days, but when it came to war, Roger was more Byzantine than Norman. Diplomatic victories were the kind he liked best. They left his army completely intact and didn't wreck the governmental machinery of the conquered place. Pausing only long enough to install a small garrison, Roger hurried inland to capture Benevento. When he arrived, he was pleasantly surprised to find the Pope, his chief rival, with only a small retinue. Leaving a besieging force to keep him occupied, Roger took his army on a leisurely tour of southern Italy, mopping up all resistance. Like Salerno, this was largely a bloodless campaign. The rebellious barons were too fractured to band together, and not foolish enough to engage Roger alone. Some of them made a show of resistance, but inevitably they all cut their losses and swore to accept Roger as their feudal lord. The only holdout now was the Pope, and though he was too independent to give up so easily, he couldn't do much mischief cooped up as he was in Benevento. So Roger, who never liked to be gone from Palermo for too long, returned to his capital well satisfied with his work. Any celebrations, though, were premature. The moment Roger's army departed, the barons had second thoughts about their oaths, and the Pope, who escaped from Benevento, found it easy to rally them into an immense anti-Sicilian league. Just two months after the nobility of southern Italy had pledged oaths of fealty to Roger, they were down on one knee again, promising not to rest until all of Roger's agents were thrown out of the peninsula. Despite the obvious danger, Roger acted with deliberate calmness, taking time to gather his army and leisurely making his way through the heel of Italy, where his support was strongest. His wealth gave him a great advantage. Unlike his opponents, he could afford to keep a large army in the field almost indefinitely. His greatest weapon was time. He knew that if he was patient enough not to force a major battle, the hot sun and restless nature of the feudal levies would do the rest. The Pope, meanwhile, was beginning to discover that his allies were impossible to control. The same independent streak which had led them to revolt made them incapable of working together, 
and they were constantly threatening to withdraw from the League. Each day that passed without action, the Grand Papal Army disintegrated a bit more. As the weeks dragged by, Roger refused to budge from this tactic. Even when the two armies ran into each other, the vanguard of the Papal Army stumbled into the Norman line while they were crossing a river. Roger merely withdrew to higher ground and waited. For the entire month of July, both sides stared at each other as the summer sun beat down. Tempers flared as the feudal levies, who had no use for sitting around, grumbled and the barons were quarreling about what their next move should be. By August, with his army shrinking, the Pope was having second thoughts. This alliance was too unstable and exhausting to maintain, and in any case, Roger, whose own camp looked depressingly disciplined and orderly, was too powerful to crush. Perhaps the better strategy would be to embrace the Normans. A strong ruler was a potential threat, and every pope since William Ironarm's day had tried to keep southern Italy from being united under one of them. But Italy needed peace, and the danger of an overmighty ruler was preferable to the current chaos. Besides, these stubborn barons were impossible. Let them be Roger's problem. The pope sent a messenger to the Norman camp, saying that he was willing to officially recognize Roger's claims to southern Italy, and withdrew. Without him, the rebellious barons melted away and the levies dissolved. Roger had managed to defeat his enemies without engaging in a single pitched battle. The Pope's one attempt to salvage his dignity was to insist that the ceremony formally investing Roger with his cousin's territory not be held on papal ground. So on the evening of August 22, 1128, he met Count Roger on a bridge outside of Benevento, and in the presence of 20,000 spectators, each carrying a torch, elevated him to Duke of Apulia, Calabria, and Sicily. The Norman barons present, as the Pope had suspected, were not impressed with their new feudal lord. No one doubted Roger's intelligence. His recent campaign was proof enough of that. But he had shown a reluctance to fight that didn't sit well with the warlike Normans. Waiting for your enemies to fall apart seems somehow cowardly. Norman respect was won on the battlefield. By nature, these men hated central authority. They would bow down to Roger's armies, but the moment he was gone, they would rise up again in revolt. Even the formidable Giscard had never really managed to stop that. And in fact, even as Roger was receiving his new title, another revolt was already underway. It took a year to put down in a campaign that was again mostly bloodless. Roger picked off the barons one by one, taking his time to make sure that the country was pacified before moving on. When the last one had surrendered, he surprised them all by offering generous pardons and called a vast assembly of all the nobles and clergy of southern Italy and Sicily. He had thought long and hard about how to solve the structural instability of the Norman lands, how to break the feudal tribal society that had evolved over the last century, and had come up with a brilliant combination of propaganda and law to weld the patchwork of territories into a single state. The entire assembly, clergy and nobles alike, were first treated to a glittering display of ducal wealth, and then made to swear new oaths to Roger and his two sons. All the old promises were repeated, to respect the duke and his property, but a new one was added. The nobility had mistaken Roger's diplomacy and pardons for softness, but now they discovered that there was iron underneath the velvet. Each of them was forced to swear not to engage in private warfare, to allow no acts of lawlessness on their lands, and to surrender all brigands to the duke's justice. To ensure this last part, 
Roger knew better than to trust their honor. He gave the court's teeth. If any noble failed to comply, they would be hunted down like common criminals. The traditional way of life of the Normans since they had come to Italy, the right of feud, had abruptly come to an end. From now on the nobility, like the peasants they controlled, were bound by the rule of law. This was the most significant development in southern Italy since the coming of the Normans themselves. Most no doubt hoped that this new phase would pass as soon as Roger returned to Sicily, but he was in deadly earnest. On every public occasion, for the rest of his long reign, he had those oaths repeated and renewed, lest any of them should be tempted to forget. Roger was now thirty-two, and had accomplished more than any Norman since Giscard. Against stiff papal and local resistance, he had united all Norman lands in Italy, and he already had tighter control over it than Giscard had ever managed. But like any good Houtville, he had bigger dreams. For all intents, he already had a kingdom. Now he wanted a crown. There was no chance that the current pope would agree to any such thing, but fortunately for Roger, the pope died the next year. The expected successor was a popular Jewish cardinal who took the name Anacletus II. But before he could be installed, a group of rival cardinals hastily elected a reformer named Innocent. The outraged supporters of Anacletus, a majority of the electing body, went ahead and installed Anacletus anyway, and for a few months there were rival camps in Rome, each claiming that the other was illegitimate. Anacletus, whose family was very wealthy and had made frequent donations to public entertainment, was far more popular than Innocent, and a few armed street fights between the sides convinced Innocent of that fact. He fled from Rome to France, where he found that he was immensely popular thanks to the reform movement that was sweeping through Europe. No one outside of Italy had any desire to return to the bad old corrupt days when the papacy was the plaything of Roman aristocrats, and the well-connected Anacletus seemed to promise just that. The most respected voice in Christendom, Bernard of Clairvaux, took up Innocent's cause, and the result was that the kings of France and England, as well as the German emperor, hurried to pledge their support to the exiled pope. Anacletus, who had paraded through the streets of Rome in triumph just a few months before, now suddenly found virtually all of Christendom united against him. Terrified, he turned to the one power who had characteristically not declared for either side, Palermo. Roger's only condition, equally predictably, was that Anacletus give him a crown. Apulia, Calabria, and Sicily were still vastly different places, and he needed the mystique of royalty to bind them together. The Pope was in no position to argue, and both sides knew it. After a modest show of contemplation, he agreed without reservation. Roger, displaying that curious Norman obsession with legalism, was careful to manage every detail of the coronation. A mass meeting of the important nobles, abbots, and bishops was called, and he formally presented them with his argument for being elevated to king. Sicily, he claimed, had once been the seat of an ancient kingdom, and therefore this was not a new creation, something bestowed by the Pope, but a restoration. The assembled nobles agreed unanimously by loud acclamation, and the meeting broke up. Roger could now claim that the people had urged him to become king. There would be no whiff of the charge of usurpation. As always, he drove this point home with official propaganda. A mosaic was commissioned showing him receiving the crown, not from the Pope, but from Christ himself. The ceremony took place on Christmas Day 1130 in Palermo, and anybody who was anybody tried to cram into the city. The nobility competed to outdo each other with ostentatious displays of wealth, 
and even the locals hung silks and threw flowers from every balcony and upper window. It was, as one eyewitness said, as if the whole city was being crowned. As was fitting, Roger himself outshone them all. Dressed in a cloth of red and gold, he held a vast banquet. The servants were dressed in finer silks than many of the spectators, and the food was served on settings of silver and gold. When it was finished, he processed to Palermo's cathedral and stood before the high altar for a service almost unique in Christian history. The Catholic Archbishop of Palermo presided, with Greek Orthodox priests attending and the Pope's representative holding the holy oil. Roger knelt and was anointed with the chrism. Then his chief vassal placed the crown on his head. When it was over, he stood and the great doors were thrown open to Palermo's population. Sicily had been a witness to most of the great Mediterranean empires. The Carthaginians, Romans, Byzantines, and Arabs had in turn ruled over the island. But for all of these, it had been a mere conquered province, exploited for its grain, forever passed between more powerful neighbors and considered important only for what resources it could provide distant capitals. Now, for the first time in its long history, despite the claims of Roger to the contrary, it had a king of its own. And on that Christmas day in 1130, the citizens of Palermo caught their first splendid glimpse of him. But there was still much work to be done, and Roger had powerful enemies. The cost of his crown had been to back Anacletus and defy the armed might of the rest of Christendom. The armies of Innocent were already on their way. Join me next time as I look at the reign of Roger II and the struggle to keep his newborn kingdom. Norman Centuries is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West and creator of the 12 Byzantine Rulers podcast. Visit us online at normancenturies.com.